uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he famously said, ultimately there is no better index of one's spiritual state and condition than one's prayers. Yeah, I'm not sure what your prayer life uh, is like. Uh, I'd love mine to grow and be growing, to put it positively. Uh, but it's often unseen, isn't it, that the prayer life? It's that which goes on in the heart, uh, goes on in, in the private uh, space. Whether you are someone who prays or, or not, I think it's true. Your prayers are a helpful barometer on the spiritual condition of your heart. Uh, I wonder whether you've thought much about this. Uh, we're planning on reading Tim Chester's book, uh, Enjoying God, in our bloke's smaller groups uh, as they start up for the year. And borrowing from the Puritan John Owen, Chester talks about how our union with God is the basis for our communion with God. Uh, what he means is the believer, the person who puts their trust in Jesus, sins forgiven through the sacrificial death, adopted into God's family, that the person in saving relationship with the God of the Bible, it's all God's work. It's gift. The believer is then wooed, if you like, to spend time with God to hang out with God, to enjoy relationship with him, to pray. Relationship with God, it's not something that we achieve. It's a gift. Apart from God giving us eyes to see, as Jesus did with the blind men last week, if you were here in chapter 20, Apart from the Lord Jesus giving his life as a ransom, a payment to set us free from slavery to sin, apart from God applying this work to our lives, we're in a hopeless state. But with him, we're free to enjoy him, to pray. Now, I begin like that because we've been, we've been on this journey with Jesus and those early disciples, uh, the, the journey to Jerusalem. And this afternoon, as we look at that first half of chapter 21, the king, King Jesus, enters his city. Uh, king Jesus enters Jerusalem in verses 1 to 11. Uh, and he then enters the temple in verses 12 to 17, and we're shown quite starkly the spiritual state of the Israelites, God's people of old, and it's a real challenge for us all these years later too. Chapter 21 begins on a really high note, uh, note though. You may have noticed as Amy was reading, and this is something like Jesus organising his own coronation. You picture the new king sitting down with the organising committee. And as, as readers of Matthew's gospel, we've seen the disciples are still really only just getting a handle on what God's kingdom is actually like. They just want the best spots for themselves at this point. So you don't give the event management role to them. Jesus is in complete control of what's going on. As they approach Jerusalem, verse 1 and 2, he sends a couple of disciples off 
to pick up the transportation. And you notice, unlike the, the typical proud, kingly entry into a city, chariots and, and war horses, limousines and, and super yachts, it's great King Jesus on one of those animals that we might find at a little kid's petting zoo. On a baby donkey. It seems ridiculous or almost a contradiction in terms. Isn't he meant to be great? It's not exactly the white warrior horse from Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus will come again in judgment. But he's told his disciples that the pattern of his kingdom, it's upside down, suffering now and glory later. He enters Jerusalem to, to be received as king, but not as the conquering King David from years ago, uh, but to die and give his life as a ransom. As Jesus rides on that little donkey, he fulfills what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah and Zechariah years before. You see verse 5 in your Bible? Uh, say to daughter Zion, and Zion is just another way of of referring to Jerusalem. Say to Jerusalem, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's, it's not enough that he's on a donkey, but he has to be on the baby version. This wonderful entry into Jerusalem, it didn't happen in a corner, did it? The crowds, are, they're gathered, that the witnesses are there in multitudes, cloaks and, and branches are, are being spread on the road before him. This is the week before the crucifixion. And at this point, the city is receiving their king. It, it, it's a wonderful moment. They're getting it. You look at the cries in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus, the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be a king on David's throne who would reign forever. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the fulfillment of Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It is some amazing scene. And we see in verse 10, or we read that the whole city is stirred, shaken. And they ask, who is this? Uh, a mate of mine uh, who was struggling with, with his, his faith, his Christianity, the, the thing, uh, he would say, I just can't get past this Jesus. I just can't get past him. You, you have to answer the question, don't you? Who is this? Verse 11, that the crowds, they give their opinion. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in, Ga in, in Galilee. Nazareth in Galilee, you may know, is a bit like being from Gainder or Mandabra uh, or Jinjin, maybe. I, I, from where, you know, out past, uh, what is it, Bigenden? No one knows. Uh, exactly. Uh, but of course, he, he's more than just a prophet, and he's more than a prophet from a tiny little town out the back of nowhere. This coronation of sorts, it continues as the text moves on. The king has entered his city. 
And now in verses 12 to 17, he enters his temple and it gets a bit sad, doesn't it? The temple for the Jews, it's the central place. Spiritually, politically, economically, socially, this is the center. It's, it's where people would go to worship the Lord. You, you, you want to meet with God, you go to the temple. But what does Jesus do as he, as he enters? I mean, it's famous, isn't it? Verse 12, we, we read, Jesus entered the temple courts and he, he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and the benches of those selling doves. Uh, you may, may or may not know the temple was made up of all these different sections. Uh, there should be, a, hopefully, a picture coming up on the screen. I'm, I'm not sure if it'll be helpful or not. But the area that is in view in our text is the outer courts, that, that section right around the edge. And it was the place where Gentiles, non-Jews, having converted to Judaism, that they could come in there to worship. To, to go further in, that there was a place for Jewish women and further in a place for Jewish men and further in for the priests and, and further in the, the Holy of Holies. But the place in which Jesus is overturning tables, where money is being exchanged, this is the only area in the temple that non-Jews were allowed. You imagine someone coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival to participate in the festival and, and worship the Lord. And because they're coming from Gainder or somewhere, you know, along from afar, it makes sense that they, they bring money uh, instead of animals to be exchanged for animals so they can partake in the sacrificial system. But this exchange, it's happening in the very place, the only place, in which the non-Jews can worship. They want to meet with the Lord in prayer. They have to do it in this busy, messy marketplace. And so quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus says in verse 15, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The Israelites, God's people of old, they were meant to be like a light on a hill. That the nations might join them, uh, come from afar and join them in worshipping the Lord, but they don't even make space for the outsider. And because God is holy, we can't just approach him. That The temple was a gift. It was a way that people could approach God, that they could relate to the Lord, pray to him. And back in the day, the blind and the, the disabled, they couldn't go in. They were considered ceremonially unclean. They weren't allowed into the temple to worship the Lord. And if someone was to touch one of these unclean people, they couldn't go in either. But you see what's happening with Jesus in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean as they connect with him, they're made clean, they're healed, 
and they can go in. But as we're reading this, you know, the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament scriptures, these wonderful things that are happening, that the spiritual state and condition of the Israelite leaders is shocking, isn't it? Verse 15. They see these wonderful things that Jesus is doing. And the children that are shouting with joy, the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. And the leaders are outraged, indignant, it reads. And they bring this up with Jesus, don't they, in verse 16. And it's as though they want him to say to the children, look, come on, kids, let's not go overboard on this. You can't call me the long-awaited king. That's, that's just too much. But he is the long-awaited king. He's a prophet, yes, and he's the king who is to come, yes. But then he quotes Psalm 8 and ups things from there a whole lot more. Uh, have you never read, says Jesus, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise. Now, by quoting Psalm 8... As Jesus does, he's not just claiming to be a prophet or or the the long-awaited king, but he's claiming to be God himself. Psalm 8 begins, uh, Liz read it for us at the start of the service, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Such a difference, isn't it? Here are the children praising God, recognising that Jesus is the king who is to come. And the leaders are saying, no, no. Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, clearing out the temple, healing the sick, all in the public square. He's claiming to be God and he goes to the cross to die in your place. And if you haven't already, you you have to say, well, who is this? There's something so wonderful going on here and and there's something so desperately sad. In verse 17, we we see that Jesus leaves. He's out of the city. He heads off to uh, Bethany to spend the night. And from verse 18 to 19, we picture him the next day, early in the morning, he's heading back into the city. He's hungry, and in verse 19 we read, Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Is this Jesus throwing a bit of a tantrum? Uh, You know how it is when you can't have breakfast. Uh, No, the Old Testament prophets would illustrate what God was saying to his people, often not just with words, but with symbols or acted parables, with sign acts. And there's some classic examples in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, if you want to read. This is Jesus doing a similar thing. And in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people of old, were often compared to a fig tree. So you picture Jesus going up to this fig tree. It has leaves, 
which means the, the fruit is expected to come. Apparently at this point, there should be at least some little, little edible buds, but Jesus finds nothing. And you picture Jesus arriving, the king arriving at his temple. It's bustling with activity. It looks like it's going great guns. It's packed. This is Passover. You expect the people to be at prayer. But there's not even space for the Gentiles to pray. And the poor are being ripped off. And the people overseeing the whole thing are tipping their hat to the Lord, taking part in this religious thing, but then living for themselves instead of him. As Doug O'Donnell puts it, like this green tree, Israel was fruitful in appearance alone. Spiritually, they were barren. And what Jesus does with the fig tree is what Jesus is doing with the temple and the leadership, to put it nicely, decommissioning. We're in this section of Matthew's gospel where the hardness of the Israelites' heart is showing up. They're on trial uh, and Jesus is starting again. A new Israel, a new people of God. The temple is done, finished with, physically destroyed. It was in 70 AD, but as Jesus was, was dying on that cross, the, the curtain was torn in two. How do you meet with this holy God? How do you have relationship? How can you have access to him? How can we be united to the true and living God that we might enjoy relationship with him? Well, it all centers on the person and work of this, this Jesus, the, the prophet from Gainder or somewhere, from Nazareth, the, 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 the Davidic, the, the long-awaited king, God himself. He fulfills the whole temple system. And he decommissions these dodgy leaders and does it himself. And you notice as we're reading Matthew, the disciples are just trying to keep up, aren't they? Like they, they get that Jesus is the king, and so they ask the king if they can have the best spots. And he has to explain, well, guys, it's, your thinking's wrong. Well, here they are again, trying to get their heads around what's going on. Verse 20, how did the fig tree wither so quickly, they ask. And maybe Jesus' response adds to their confusion in verse 21 and 22. You see here, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. It's good to just sit with that one a little while, isn't it? Um, I have never heard of anyone praying in a mountain being thrown into the sea. I don't think there's any accounts of that in church history. The hummock dumped at Kelly's. Um, we wouldn't put it at Nielsen's. It's a better beach. You don't, you don't want to wreck that. Um, 
But I don't think God's interested in moving physical mountains. That would be odd. But he is interested in us trusting him. And do you see that's the emphasis here? Trust, uh, faith. And a wonderful barometer of our faith in God is prayer. When we pray, how we pray, what we pray. What was that line from Martin Lloyd-Jones? Ultimately, there is no better index of one's spiritual state and condition than one's prayers. You can have a magnificent temple as they did in the first century, bustling with activity and be prayerless. You can be regular to a church on a Sunday afternoon and even know the right things to say, but be prayerless. You can be a community that says, Lord, Lord, but is prayerless. As we're united to God through the saving work of Jesus, if you've put your trust in Christ, handed your life over to him, I am not my own, I belong to you. United to Christ, we're free to enjoy him. And as sad as the hardness of the Israelites' hearts are in this section, I think what Jesus says here is an encouragement for the disciples of old and us today to pray big. Not that strange name it and claim it sort of stuff as though God will do whatever we ask, tell him to do. Sometimes God does say no. The father said no to Jesus when he said, please take this cup from me in the garden. He said no to the apostle Paul when he asked for that, that thorn to be removed, whatever that was. Sometimes God does say no. But united to Christ, Praying his will that he would open the eyes of people's hearts, that more Gentiles might come in, that we would understand more of the shape of this upside down kingdom, that he would use us for his glory, united to Christ and so enjoying him in prayer. So maybe the application to go home is if you're united to Christ, If your trust is in Jesus, what does your prayer life say about your spiritual state? And if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, you've got to look at him, don't you? Who is this man who rides a donkey into the capital city and clears out the temple and dies on the cross only to rise three days later? Anyway, why don't we pray? Let's let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Uh, We thank you for your upside-down kingdom, that the Almighty Son would become a man and ride a little donkey into the capital, gentle and lowly. We thank you for our servant King, who served us to the point of death, paying that ransom. 
We thank you that, yes, he's a prophet and, yes, he is the long-awaited king who was to come. But he is God, the son himself. Father, thank you so much that we can fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us trust you. And Lord, help us, knowing the security that we have in him, help us enjoy you in prayer. And Lord, it is our prayer that many, many more people might come in. We pray that you would open people's eyes, that they might see that Jesus is king, that you would soften people's hearts to the saving message of Jesus. We pray that many, many people would bow the knee with Jesus as Lord. And we ask, Lord, that we would just keep praying and enjoying you all the days of our lives for the sake of your renown. Amen.